Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This is found on page 976 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for the good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thanks, Sally Kay. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Brookside campus of Christ Community. My name's Taylor, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to get into that text that Hallie Kay just read so wonderfully for us. Uh, my face is a little red and sunburnt today. I spent all day yesterday at the Disc Golf World Championships in Emporia, Kansas, um, and I didn't wear sunscreen all day. So today's sermon's about making better decisions. Um, it's actually not making about that at all. Uh, when I was in elementary school, my brother and I had this set of toys that we loved loved playing with more than any other toys, and they were these things called Lincoln Logs. Does anyone know Lincoln Logs? Kids, do any of you have Lincoln Logs? Yeah, Lincoln Logs are, are pretty awesome. Uh, they came in that sweet, like, tin tub thing, which is cool, like what you get popcorn in around Christmas. They had a bunch of different shapes and sizes and little notches, so you could stack them up in different ways. You could build all kinds of, of cool stuff with Lincoln Logs. Now, kids, I have a question for you this morning. What is the worst thing that can happen when you build something cool? Yeah, it breaks, right? Have you ever had something that you've made that you're really proud of or excited about get torn down or, or broken or taken apart? Um, I have, and the thing is there were two different ways that my Lincoln Log mansions would find disaster and get taken apart. Here's the first way that would happen. I would build something really awesome. And then I'd get really excited about it, and I'd run downstairs, our toys were upstairs, I'd run downstairs, and I'd tell my mom, and I'd tell my brother about it, I was really proud of it. But before any of us could get back up there, my brother would sprint upstairs and knock it all down. Anyone have siblings like that? Not like t knocking, <laughs> I see an entire row of siblings who do it to each other out there. This is, this is exactly how life works. He would just destroy everything, and he thought it was funny, but it was just mean. It was, it was just mean. There was no recovering. I had to start completely from scratch. There wasn't even a foundation left on the mansion to start with. That's the first way that my mansions would, would fall apart. Now, here's the second way it would happen. See if, if you can relate to this, kids. Sometimes I would see a problem with the thing I built. Or maybe I would have an even better idea for something cooler that I could make. So I would intentionally take off different pieces from the house, take some of the pieces of it apart 
so that I could make something better. I'd take some off and I'd put them in different places. I'd add things on the top to make it really tall or really big. Some of the pieces I'd take off wouldn't end up going back on the house at all because they, they didn't need them. Others would find a different place on the house. But the idea is this, that I would take my first house apart so that I could rebuild something better afterwards. Does that make sense? And kids, that's the basic idea behind this series that we've been in upstairs for the last few weeks that we're calling Reconstructing Faith. Reconstructing Faith. It's been common and increasingly common for people to say that they're in a season where they would say that they are deconstructing their faith. And what they mean by that is just that they are questioning, they are rethinking, they are taking apart pieces of their faith that they have built over their life. And what we've said so far in this series is that there's a healthy way to approach deconstructing faith and an unhealthy way to approach deconstructing faith. The unhealthy way is the way that my brother would obliterate my beautiful Lincoln Log creation. We become so comfortable tearing everything down that that becomes all we do, and we rip it apart to the foundation. A lot of times we've said that we can get stuck in this cycle of de destruction and cynicism, where we unbuild with no real intention of rebuilding. That's the unhealthy way. Now, the healthy way we've said that we can deconstruct faith is more like how I would intentionally and thoughtfully take pieces off of my creation. Usually, I didn't know what it was going to look like in the end, exactly, but I knew that some things had to go, or some things had to go somewhere else. And it was hard to deconstruct something that I had built, because it was something that I was proud of, but my hope and goal was always that I would end up reconstructing something better in the end. That's the healthy way. And we've said all along that this kind of process is inevitable, and it isn't a necessarily bad thing. One pastor described this in a way that really resonated with my own faith journey. He says this, to struggle with one's faith is often the surest sign that we actually have one. I'll say that again. To struggle with one's faith, faith is often the surest sign that we actually have a faith. So our hope in this series is to struggle with our faith together. To walk together as a church, no matter where you are or how you would describe your faith right now, to walk together as a church on this journey of reconstructing our faith so that we don't end up perpetually stranded in the desert of deconstruction. Now, for some of us, that means building on something that's already there to continue to strengthen an already vibrant faith. Kids, you might be constructing faith for the first time in your life right now, and that is awesome. What we're going to talk about this morning is going to help you keep building on that faith. For others of us, this journey means being compassionate and a helpful guide to those around us who are struggling in our faith community. For others of us, it means letting ourselves ask the questions we've always wanted to ask, but never had the courage to ask. For others of us, it means wrestling with the spiritual trauma that we've picked up from, from Christians or churches or leaders. But for each and every one of us, 
It means clinging more firmly to Jesus when everything else feels shaky or uncertain. That's the vision for this series. And the book of Ephesians has been our guide to reconstructing faith. So far, the apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, has shown us that reconstructing faith has to begin and end in Christ and receiving the better identity, the broader family, and the beautiful story that he has blessed us with. That's the foundation for reconstructing faith. If it's not built on that, Paul says, it's not faith. Then last week, Paul's prayer showed us that if we're going to build or rebuild well, we need to assume a posture of humility, not arrogance, curiosity, not self-righteousness or knowledge, and confidence where we ask God to reveal more of himself to us and also expect him to meet us in power. That's the posture of humility and curiosity and confidence that we have to adopt if we're going to rebuild our faith well. And this morning, we're going to struggle together, if we can use Swoboda's language there, we're going to struggle together with two important realities that we can have a really hard time believing. I have a hard time believing both of these realities sometimes. In fact, a misunderstanding or maybe a misrepresentation of these realities might have contributed to your own deconstruction at some point along the way. But both are important bedrock realities for reconstructing faith, so we've got to get clear on what Paul means when he talks about them. So first, the first thing we need to do if we're looking at Ephesians 2, we have to come to grips with the reality that we need reconstructed. We have to come to grips with the reality that we need reconstructed. Look at me with me at how Paul begins chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says this, he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. What Paul is doing here is he's reminding the Ephesian community of what their life was like before they were united to Jesus. So this is what was true of them before they were united to Jesus. And he describes them as being dead in their sin. He says they're dead in their sin. Now, when the New Testament writers, including Paul, talk about sin, they talk about it in two ways. They talk about it both as individual actions that we take that are sinful, and also as a power that has hold over us, the power of sin. And Paul is implying both here when he says that they once, he uses the word they walked, they walked in their sins. In other words, their lifestyle was ruled by sin. And the result of walking under the rule of sin was so significant that he says it could be described as being dead dead. Now this idea speaks to an idea that's present throughout scripture that goes like this. It is possible to be physically alive and spiritually dead. It's possible to be physically alive and spiritually dead. We see this from the very beginning, the story that uh, the book that Anna Lynn read recapped for us, where the sin of Adam and Eve cut 
them off from God, who is the source of all life, and introduced death into the world. From the very beginning, sin and death have been tied together. And the rest of the biblical writers describe the human condition in the same way. That when we are cut off from God, we are cut off from life. When we're under the reign of sin, when we follow a spirit other than the spirit of God, we're like Bruce Willis in the sixth sense, walking around thinking we're alive only to realize we've been dead the whole time. Spoilers, by the way. It's been out for several years, um, so I feel like it's okay to spoil that movie now. (laughs) Now here's the dilemma. We can be dead in these things and not recognize it. We can be dead in these things and not recognize it. Here's what I mean by that. When I was in in elementary school, uh, we went to the eye doctor because my brother needed glasses. So we drove, my mom always went to like these places like an hour away when there was one right in town. I don't know why. So we drove an hour away to go to the eye doctor because my brother had been complaining for a while about his eyesight. So we took him in and I got a checkup just since we were already there. I went ahead and, and got a checkup. And as it turned out, my brother lied on his eye exam because he just wanted glasses to look cool. A few weeks later, he came clean because he was getting, like, terrible headaches. (laughs) So he lied about it, but what we found out was that my eyesight was absolutely awful. So we went in to get him glasses, and I needed them way worse than him and had no idea I needed them. I left that day. I don't know if any of you experienced this, if you got glasses, and the world looked so much different to me. I was like, wow, the grass actually has individual blades. I just thought they were green, blurry blobs. (laughs) This is cool. I just thought that everyone had to sit a foot from the TV to actually see it. I was like, that's just how life works for everyone, right? I just thought that's what the world looked like, but the glasses changed my perspective on everything. I had no idea. In a similar way, unless we actually intentionally reflect and examine our lives and recognize our need, we will walk around in death thinking we're alive. But many of you have experienced this when we put on the glasses of faith. After denying for so long sometimes that we need them, we're like, wow, I had no idea how dead I really was. Paul also names three enemies that try to keep us from realizing our condition of death and the significance of our sin. He calls them the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, and the passions of our flesh. In other words, the three historic enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are enemies, he says, that have profound influence on our lives and attempt to sabotage our souls by keeping us turned away from God, by keeping us walking in the way of sin and death, by forming us not into the image of Jesus, but out of the image of Jesus. And all of these factors, the world, the flesh, the devil, our sin, our death, come together to place us in a predicament. And here's the predicament. We long for a world that is full of things like goodness and beauty and justice and truth and joy and peace. Whether you would say you're a Christian, you follow Jesus or not, we all long for a world that's full of these things, goodness and beauty and truth and justice and joy and peace. We deeply long for them. 
But here's the predicament. We are part of the problem of sowing division and ugliness and sadness and injustice in the world. I'll at least speak for myself. I am part of the problem of sowing those things in our world. Which is why Paul describes their past selves as being children of wrath. Because our participation in creating brokenness in our world places us under the wrath of God. Now, when we think of that word wrath, we typically think of someone like flying off the handle in an instant and and overwhelming, uncontrollable rage. But that's not what is meant here or in the Bible when it talks about wrath. This kind of wrath is not just an uncontrollable emotion, but a, a deliberate pronouncement of judgment. To be under wrath is to be carefully weighed, examined, and found still wanting. These concepts of sin and death and judgment and wrath and disobedience, all these words that Paul uses, these are super unpopular ideas in our world today. And to be sure, let me say this and hear me say this, the church has wielded and presented them in unhelpful ways that have maybe harmed you. But they are important ideas, however uncomfortable they feel, to wrestle with. Because even though they're hard, that doesn't mean they're not good. Anyone who's gotten good at at a sport or an instrument knows that hard things can still be good things. Sometimes the best things for us are hard. So just because they're hard doesn't mean that they're good ideas or important. And we can't rebuild any kind of solid faith if we don't personally come to grips with the fact that we ourselves need to be reconstructed. We need pieces removed. We need pieces restructured. We need to be remodeled from the inside out. And that's what all of these ideas are helping us realize that we need reconstructed. I think N.T. Wright who's a New Testament scholar, brings all these realities together and presents them in a really helpful way. Here's what he says. He says, The wrath of God is simply the shadow side of the love of God for his wonderful creation and his amazing human creatures. Like a great artist appalled at the way his paintings have been defaced by the very people who were supposed to be looking after them, God's implacable rejection of evil is the natural outflowing of his creative love. God's anger against evil is itself the determination to put things right, to get rid of the corrupt attitudes and behaviors that have spoiled his world and his human creatures. It is because God loves the glorious world he has made and is utterly determined to put everything right that he is utterly opposed to everything that spoils or destroys that creation especially the human creatures who were supposed to be linchpins of his plan for how that creation would flourish. Here's what he's saying. Sin is not simply doing bad things or breaking rules, but turning from God and destroying his beautiful creation. And wrath, then, is not uncontrolled rage, but a deliberate removal of the things that spoil that world. I love how that resonates with the, the, the phrase that stood out to me in the book that Anna Lynn read of spoiling the beautiful world. That's what sin is. 
And wrath is a deliberate removal of those things. And the result of all of these forces, if we have no way of being reconstructed ourselves, is death. Now, despite our modern objections and uncomfortabilities, the Ephesians actually would have been nodding along vigorously at that point. They knew how lousy their situation was before Jesus. They knew. And you might be there too. You might be nodding along saying, yes, I know this about myself. I see it. But Paul's main point in bringing this up is not to sit in the despair of our need for reconstruction, but to celebrate this reality, that God is reconstructing us. That God is reconstructing us. Look how he continues in the rest of the passage. This is such a remarkably rich passage. Pay attention especially to the words that should be in bold on the screen as I read, starting in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then like he has to interrupt his train of thought because he wants to get this point across. He's like, okay, yeah, that, by grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him, and he keeps talking. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, here's that word again, walk in them. Now what pops pops off the page in this section, not just because I highlighted them up there, (laughs) but what pops off the page when you read it is just the abundance of words like grace, mercy, love, kindness, gift, over and over and over again. Paul is emphasizing the remarkable grace and action of God in intervening to rescue us from the dilemma of sin and judgment and death, overemphasizing this incredible grace. And in doing that, he wants to make two things clear, two things very clear. The first, we can't remake ourselves. We cannot reconstruct ourselves. He goes out of his way to over and over and over again say, it's by grace you've been saved. It's not of your own doing, not by your works. We cannot remake ourselves. Only God can and his power that he uses for that is grace. He goes out of his way to say that any rebuilding is not our own doing. The only way for us to be remade is to encounter and receive the free gift of grace that God pours out on us because of his love and kindness and rich, overflowing mercy. Only God can reconstruct us, and the good news that Paul is celebrating here is that in Jesus, he is doing just that. By the power of grace, he rescues us from wrath and to mercy. By the power of his grace, he transforms our identity from sinner to saint. By the power of his grace, he redeems our shame into beauty. By the power of his grace, he lifts us out of defeat to share in the victory of Jesus. By the power of his grace, he raises us from death to life. No amount of moral living, 
No amount of good behavior, no amount of self-enlightenment or authenticity can rebuild us like this. Amen? The good news is precisely the fact that God did not come to make bad people good, but he came to make dead people alive. That's the good news. And Paul says that because of all of that, because God is reconstructing us, we can be called his workmanship. Some translations use the word masterpiece there. The only other place that Greek word is used is in another place in Romans where Paul is talking about God's beautifully created world. He says we are his workmanship. You may be familiar uh, with the Japanese art of kintsugi. Kintsugi is a creative process where they take broken, pieces of broken pottery and use seams of gold to repair it like what you see in this picture. And often the new piece of pottery is, is incredibly unique and even more stunning than the first piece before it was broken. And that's the idea here. God is renovating our lives and remaking us into something new and better and beautiful. Now, if I'm honest, and maybe you're with me, I can have a really hard time believing this, too. As hard of a time as sometimes I have believing my sin and death, I have a harder time believing this story. And usually that's because of the prominent role of shame in our lives. That enemy, shame, who wants to make us think that we don't just make mistakes, but we are a mistake. That wants to make us think that we aren't and will never be enough. And if we're honest, some of us are in a place where we are deconstructing faith precisely because shame is influencing us to believe these lies. Maybe they're lies that the church has perpetuated through scare tactics or an overemphasis on sin as our primary identity that defines us, forgetting that when we're united to Jesus, that primary identity shifts from sinner to saint. We still sin, but that doesn't define who we are. Maybe you're believing lies that are perpetuated by self-help and social media culture that says you can be anything and everything that you want. So we place loads of pressure on ourselves to make something out of ourselves. And in either of these cases, what happens is when we fail or when we don't see the fruit of God's work in our life, we give up and we doubt that we really are God's handiwork or that he would even want someone like us or that his grace could make something meaningful out of us. We doubt it. And that's why Paul is shifting our focus here from shame and guilt to joy and gratitude and celebration because he's saying this, and friends, if you're in Jesus, this is already true of you. You are alive. You are redeemed. You are saved. You have been raised. You are seated in victory. You are loved. You are a saint. This is true of you now. Because God is reconstructing us. Pastor Bill is still on sabbatical, so I'm going to squeeze in a C.S. Lewis quote here in his honor to help us see what it looks like for God to reconstruct us. You might have heard this before. Here's what he says. He says, imagine yourself as a living house, and God comes in to rebuild the house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. 
and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. Paul wants to make it clear that this kind of renovation is not something that we earn or work to achieve for ourselves. That would be utterly opposed to the idea of grace. God doesn't tell us to reconstruct ourselves. We can't. But what he does do is invite us to pick up a hammer. He invites us to pick up a hammer. Look again at verse 10. We are his workmanship. That whole idea that C.S. Lewis just outlined. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So the idea is this, we need reconstructed. God is reconstructing us and the invitation for all of us is simple. Join God's work. Join God's work. Pick up a hammer and join the work that God is already doing in your lives. Many of us, and you might have been in this place, can have a hard time with faith because we look around and we see people who claim Jesus but don't live lives that are different, changed, or transformed from anyone around them. They claim Jesus, but they treat someone poorly. Maybe they treated you poorly, and it can be hard to wrestle with faith in those places. And that can happen when we believe that the grace Paul lifts up here lets us off the hook for actively joining God's work in renovating our lives. As Dallas Willard says, we have to stop using the fact that we cannot earn grace as an excuse for not energetically seeking to receive grace. Grace is opposed to earning, but not effort. Another scholar, John Barclay, puts it this way. The words will be on the screen. He says, across Paul's letters, grace is defined consistently as an incongruous gift, meaning it is given freely in the sense that it's given without prior conditions and without guard to worth or capacity, so you don't have to earn it. But that does not mean that it comes with no expectations of return, no hope for a response, no strings attached. A gift may be free in one sense, given irrespective of of worth or deserving, but not in another with no expectation of response. In fact, the Christ gift carries strong expectations because it is transformative. It remolds the self and recreates the community of believers. That's the idea that Paul wants the Ephesians to see. The transformative nature of grace. Before you were this, now you are this. And not just as a one-time gift, but as a continuing power in our lives that fuels the transformation of the individual and community into the beautiful workmanship of the God who made the universe. Notice that the passage here in Ephesians 2 begins and ends with walking, that verb to walk. At the beginning, he says, apart from Christ, we were actively walking in sin and death and disobedience. But now, on the other end of God's saving work, we should be actively walking in life and obedience, not death and disobedience. And the good works that God already has for us, we should be seeking to do. 
So as we close this morning, I want to ask these twin questions. Take a moment to reflect. Where is God's grace already at work in your life, and how can you join him this week? Where is God's grace already at work in your life, and how can you join him in that work this week? Maybe for you that means trusting Jesus for the first time, putting on those glasses of faith to help you recognize your need for reconstruction and the incredible lengths God went to to be able to remake you if you ever gave him a chance. Maybe that's your, your way of joining him. Maybe for you it's a posture of joy and gratitude and celebration for the ways God has encountered you and redeemed you, even if you have some skepticism in other areas. Maybe it's ceasing from striving and resting in the grace of God, reminding yourself that performance cannot earn his kingdom. Maybe it's training your eyes to just be more aware of how God is already active in your life. But just take a moment, you might want to even close your eyes, just give you a minute. Where is God already at work in your life? And how is he calling you to pick up a hammer and join that work? Take a moment to reflect on that. However it is that God is calling you to partner with him, the remarkable news that no one can take away from you is that you have been saved by grace through faith. You, in all of your brokenness, are his workmanship. And whatever struggles you have with your faith, his grace isn't done taking your brokenness and crafting something beautiful, good, and true out of your life. Let that anchor you this week. Can we pray? God, I just pray that you would open our eyes to our disobedience, to our sin, maybe to our condition of death for some of us. Help us to see our need to be rebuilt and remade and remodeled. And God, I pray once we have that realization that even more deeply, in a deeper cavern of our soul, you would cement the reality of who we are now in Jesus. And God, when shame tries to tell us a different story, would you surround us with people that remind us of what is true and real? We pray against the work of the enemy. We pray against the pressures of the world. We pray against the desires of our flesh that are misguided so that we might see ourselves as you see us. Give us eyes to see your action in the world and in our lives and to pick up a hammer and join it. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, by the power of his spirit. Amen.